welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by, count them, but wait a minute, I gotta count them. Is it, is it five? Five? Five Four. skeptics? Four. Four. Four skeptics! Almost twice as many on this panel as we had Christians last week, because that's what it takes to counter the Christian argument. We have Andrew. No, as it turns out, it is five. Sorry. <laughs> this was the mathematician. Oh, God. Someone give him another finger. We have twice as many skeptics as we had Chris. You know what? Forget it. Uh, we have Andrew. Uh, say hello, Andrew. <laughs> and uh, um, Hello, everyone. <laughs> yes. And uh, we have Sarah of the Alps. Sarah, how you doing? Good. What a hell of a day. <laughs> oh, you don't know the half of it. Nice. Uh, we have, um, we have uh, Matthew. Hello. Uh, we have Brian with a Y. Hello, everybody. Uh, we have me. And we have a surprise special guest. I am going to preemptively name this guest before Teddy steps in to do her terrible work the <laughs> the anti-god Val hi everybody Val here all nice hail everybody bravo bravo <laughs> so uh, this is uh, Val's very first time uh, appearing on a podcast he is making his worldwide international galactic Yay, Universal debut. Mm -hmm. So, Val, uh, no pressure there. Welcome aboard. You know, we were all uh, so excited to have you on, Val. Let me just just tell you, Andrew and I, uh, before the show, we were just talking and planning. And uh, my, my plan was just to introduce you and then leave. Oh God! Because oh, I seconded the motion. I don't know what we're still doing. <laughs> so, so without any, don't worry, no Val. Pressure. We'll be right there. Uh, we're, go- we're going to be talking about hell. This is round uh, two, uh, a discussion of hell. Uh, the skeptics view, skeptics as in plural, because I don't think there is one single view. We're going to kick this off uh, without further ado, and we are going to let Val start us off with his opening statement. Take it away. Well, uh, first, I didn't know we were going to be doing opening statements, but um, <clears throat> I guess uh, my opening statement would be, uh, you know, I've sort of written down some notes, so I would probably, uh, I'm not used to speaking on podcasts, but I guess I'll sort of uh, crib what I can here. But I guess it, uh, I would kind of want to lay a bit of groundwork um, for the fact that I think uh, Christians listening to a conversation like this uh, are probably going to bristle and object to the very idea of atheists rendering judgment on their God. Uh, You know, but I think that's just kind of too bad because uh, first, it's the goodness of their biblical God that's basically under dispute. So you can't just beg the question and just assert that God's goodness. And, uh, and then there's a the question like, do we have to um, present our own moral ontology or normative theory before assessing the claims about the character of that biblical God? 
And uh, no, we don't. Uh, we can basically just sort of make an, an argument that appeals to uh, consistency, uh, just the consistency in applying a criteria. Uh, a criteria. Uh, however, that criteria arose. So, you know, we're going to be talking about concepts like good and bad and loving and just and benevolent and kind and compassionate. Basically, as those terms are normally understood, the way we apply them to each other when evaluating character and when we're deciding on what makes for a good society, making our rules, etc. So, I, I mean, we generally all have an understanding of these type of ground rules. So, I mean, if you're writing a movie script and... You have uh, one character who just callously disregards or sacrifices the well-being of innocent people to achieve his aims. And you've got another character who acts to safeguard the well-being of those innocent people, uh, even at the risk to his own well-being. You've got your bad guy and your good guy. Uh, so, I mean, nobody walks out of Star Wars wondering if Darth Vader was the villain or Luke Skywalker was the hero. You, you, you we have like a substantial agreement on what good people versus bad people look like. And uh, the Christian's going to have an argument grounding morality, uh, which the atheist is going to find unacceptable, and vice versa. But, you know, even if this common understanding of moral character were without any objective grounding, we still have this common criteria. And we can see who's being most consistent in applying those standards, especially when it comes to a valid claim that an ancient book represents a perfectly good and just being. So, I mean, like, you know, we've got, if you look in the dictionary, uh, we have definitions for words like love, you know, profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person, or a feeling of warm personal attachment or deep uh, affection as uh, for a parent, child, or friend, or loving which is like feeling or showing love or great care, or benevolence, so characterized by or expressing goodwill or kindly feelings, essentially an inclination to help others, you know, compassion, uh, just, all these kind of things. The, the reason that those words exist in the dictionary with definitions in the first place is that we have convergence on what those words mean and how we normally apply them. So, you know, when it comes to applying them to the claims about a, like a, somebody's God, I go along with like John Stuart Mill, who you know, put it, you know, I will call no being good who's not what I mean uh, when I apply that epithet to my fellow creatures. And I mean, you have even for Christians, you've had Christians recognizing this problem too. So you've got C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, and, and, and he pointed out, uh, as he wrote, he said, if God's moral judgment differs from ours so that our black may be as white, we can mean nothing by calling him good. For to say God is good while asserting his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say God is we know not what. And an utterly unknown quality in God cannot give us moral grounds for loving or obeying him. If he's not in our sense good, we shall obey, if at all, only through fear and should be equally ready to obey an omnipotent fiend. So, I mean, he goes on to try and square uh, um, our moral uh, faculties with what we learn about God, but I don't think he does a good job. And the final thing I would say, as far as having a criteria on which to uh, judge claims about a biblical God, is that Christians themselves um, give us this basis. So, 
Um, like in the Catholic tradition, uh, you have natural law theories of morality. So where you had like uh, St. Aquinas, Aquinas um, argued that morality can be apprehended through the use of reason and derived from apprehending both the nature of the world and from the nature of humans, especially uh, looking at the nature of reason itself. So that we basically have a, a basis for moral reasoning that doesn't require revelation. Uh, and on the Protestant side, uh, sorry, am I taking up too much time here? Oh, no, no, you're good. Okay, just finishing off here. So on the Protestant side, uh, it's really common for apologists like William Lane Craig to appeal to the moral argument for God, which is just that quickly, if God does not exist, objective uh, moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And so the support for premise two there, objective, morals, uh, objective moral values do exist, uh, the Christian appeals to our moral sentiments, you know, that rape is wrong, torturing children for fun is wrong, etc. So in other words, this argument bases the conclusion that a God exists on the idea that we are apprehending objective moral truths. So that entails that we can apprehend moral truths without revelation. And to look at its implications, you can just sort of imagine it, uh, another form of this argument. Uh, in which we would argue from the objective truth of our mathematical intuitions to the existence of a great mathematician. So 2 plus 2 equals 4, 10 minus 5 equals 5, 2 times 3 equals 6. These are objectively valid and true. And for uh, objective, objective mathematical truth to exist, the great mathematician, the author, and ontological grounding of these mathematical truths must exist. So, fine, accept the argument. But once you accept the argument, if you're going to run up to me waving a book saying, I think I found a book authored by the great mathematician, well, one thing is certain. Uh, job one of that book is to get the math right. If the author's math contains mistakes, uh, that's the reason to put it on the reject pile. So what you can, And also what you can't do is... is start with like ad hoc excuses to save your claim. So for instance, you, you, if you start to say, but look, the author clearly got some of the math right. I mean, look, uh, 10 minus five equals five and two times three equals six. And sure, he wrote, you know, two plus two equals 37. And that feels wrong to our mathematical intuitions, but surely the great mathematician has an understanding of math far beyond their own. And what looks wrong to us would be shown right if only we knew the right math. Uh, like, no, you can't say those kind of things because then you're just undermining the reliability of our mathematical intuitions, the reliability of which you use to argue for the great mathematician in the first place. You're just trying to have your cake and eat it too. So uh, the same goes for if you present us with a book that you claim is authored by uh, the God who grounds our moral intuitions. The first job is that the author get morality right by our lights and that it doesn't violate our moral intuitions. You can't save the claim in a way that casts doubt on the reliability of our moral intuitions. So the upshot is you got to play by the rules, not cheat. We have grounds to evaluate your claims, both on the appeal to consistency of how we use terms and, and uh, moral appraisal uh, in regular everyday life, and on the grounds that Christians themselves have argued that we apprehend morality without requiring scriptural uh, revelation. And I would end there. Okay, so first of all, I am so glad that I don't have to follow that. Um, because I'm the host, 
I can I can stick that terrible duty on someone else. And I'm going to stick it on Andrew. I just want to say, folks, this is what Val sounds like when he's not prepared. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, wow. so, um, <laughs> just, just thank, uh, let me say one uh, more thing, Val. I know this is your debut on a podcast like this. My debut on a podcast like this was on Unbelievable. Um, we were doing introductions. Uh, Andrew was there with me. We were doing introductions. Hello, how you doing? Uh, I'm David. Uh, when it got around to um, Randall Rouser's turn, first of all, we were up against Randall Rouser, so <laughs> talk about not fair. Second of all, he did not say hello, how you doing? I'm Randall. Rouser. He just started punching us in the face. We were, <laughs> you know, you talk about putting someone on their back foot and keeping them there. That was our experience. So, yeah. welcome to podcasting. <laughs> okay, and now Randall Rouser. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> uh, and now so, uh, um, Andrew. David, I'll just say to all of that, I liked you when we did the Unbelievable podcast together. Now you're making me follow Val. <laughs> okay. Better so, than me, sir. So I want to come alongside um, some of what Val said as my, uh, as my opening unfolds here. But um, I think another important place maybe to start is to talk about seeming contradiction in the Christian story. Uh, we'll get into this, uh, David, you and I have talked about uh, some problems with uh, Luke 16, 19 to 31. So that's the story of the, of the rich man and Lazarus. And I know uh, you're going to have some things to say about that passage in, it, uh, in regard to eternal conscious torment. I'll just say right here, without, uh, without the big reveal uh, down toward the bottom of that passage, that it's, it's easy to see, even in the letters uh, supposedly written in red, right, the, the letters of Jesus, the, the ones that are uh, colored in red because of his spilled blood, that, that even in passages that, that plainly are discussing hell, even, even if you think it's uh, figurative, it's a, it's a passage clearly discussing hell, and the contradictions even within that passage um, are things that, that make us as skeptics shake our heads and not start in the same place that Christians do, in the sense that there's a, uh, an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, just creator of the universe uh, who has the right and capacity to rightly divide the good from the evil and to uh, then assign some of us to uh, a fate of, of eternal good and others to a fate of, of eternal torture. So I think I think that's going to be important as we go along to uh, identify the the conflicts that we as skeptics see that are not easily reconcilable. Now, certainly the Christians that you know Val talked about Christians uh, disagreeing with us, sort of uh, sort of at the very beginning that we would uh, that we would feel like we could rightly argue with a creator of the universe. But uh, I think it's important to understand that. We can disagree over that and and disagree and disagree quite rationally, right? Because uh, that's a claim that has to be demonstrated. We have to be able to uh, we have to be able to verify that we should start in the same place as Christians. And if you can identify conflicts uh, in the text where uh, an, an all-knowing God would simply make better writing decisions. 
Well, that's a good place to start with questioning the story. Now, some of the listeners will know that I am somewhat a subjectivist. Um, I don't know, Val, you may be, uh, in regard to uh, morals or ethics, you may be, uh, uh, you may be hold that, obje- uh, that morals are objective. I'm inclined to that, yeah. Okay, so we're in slightly different places because I think a lot of our decisions uh, start with the very subjective. But I want to say, as we get into these ideas about uh, about justice and truth, and consequences, and and uh, you know ethical values and that kind of thing, it's very possible to start from a subjective place and still uh, and still find that once we agree upon a subjective principle, it's very possible to conclude that there are objective measures after that agreement that get us to whatever goal. Uh, we're trying to reach. So one of those is if we can agree, for instance, uh, that we want to reduce human suffering, even if we think that's a a subjective value, we can objectively agree on what is good for human thriving, even if that subjective value, uh, or even if that starting place is subjective. Um, So this is going to be a complex conversation, and I'll leave... um, the reveal for the problems in Luke 16 uh, for a little later. Uh, but I do want to say that even as a, uh, even as someone who thinks that uh, a lot of our decisions are subjective, and when we talk about uh, truth, justice, consequences, when we talk about love and hate, and, uh, other, uh, other ethical uh, ideas, even if we start in a place of subjectivity, we can end with objectivity. And whether you're a Christian or you're a skeptic or you're some other flavor, we all have to find a place to agree before we can even begin the conversation. Brian, Sarah, Matthew. You want us to all go at the same time? Uh, yes. No, I don't. <laughs> yes. Just in that order. <laughs> I, uh, I will be brief because I certainly do not want to pale in comparison to Val, who, by the way, I'm extremely excited to be on the same show as his debut. So kudos to you, David, for, for landing the big fish. Uh, but I'll just, I'll just say what my goal is on being on a, on a show like this. Uh, you know, my aims in being in the quote-unquote conversation in general is to try to pay it forward. I was a former Christian. I was a Christian for over 20 years, and it was difficult getting out. And now that I'm out, I want to do for Christians that are willing to question, are willing to doubt, want to explore what it would look like on the other side. I want to be able to help them to do that in the same way that people did that for me when I was on my way out. And hell is a big topic. It's one that causes a lot of consternation, a lot of gnashing of teeth, literally and figuratively. So it's a big topic. It's one that I think is fraught with problems when you have Christians and atheists talking because they don't share the same presuppositions, they don't share the same axioms, they don't take the same things for granted before the conversation starts. So I'm hoping to shed some light on how those conversations can go better and have them with the right baseline so we can actually talk about the issues that are important to hell. 
Is that me next? <laughs> it's me. Um, yeah, so I would say pretty much everybody but Val uh, used to believe in hell on this podcast, didn't they? We all knew what uh, what it signified, and I think we pretty much all held to the um, eternal conscious torment model. Um, certainly, I hadn't heard of any other version uh, for many years. Um, and uh, so I, I'd just say that in terms of listening to podcasts about it previously, I find it quite helpful because it's been such a it's it gets imprinted on you uh, so young before you've had a chance to um, critically appraise the idea uh, that I think it, it sparks you know neurological circuits that are, are emotional and not necessarily logical and they are so hardwired that you have a really hard time coming out of it um, and no longer believing it in it so I actually find Christians talking about it the most helpful thing because it does start to sound completely and utterly crazy as a notion and it, it, there's just something that flips in people when they suddenly realize that it just doesn't make sense anymore. And you, and that can be Christians that move along from eternal conscious torments to more liberal forms, or that can be just giving up on the idea completely. But there's just something, once, once that switch is flicked, you can't go back and just and rationalize it as something sensible anymore so uh anytime i hear hear about it, it for me it's a form of therapy it helps to calm that neurological uh, circuit down because that doesn't leave you uh sometimes people have that for the rest of their lives um and it's it is very difficult to get um rid of so that's uh, all i'll say for the moment so it's over to matthew Hey, right. If this podcast was a Hollywood movie, I'd be the token ugly one with a strange accent who dies early to make everybody else look good. So there we go. Um, <laughs> Are you wearing a red shirt? Purple. Does that count? Close. Close. Red Close. shirts. It's a, it's, a, it's a geek thing, folks. Star Trek. <laughs> um, yeah. Hell. Hell. It's not pleasant. It's uh, it's not a motivating um, subject. It's not the product of a truly loving creator being. Christians should know that. They should realize that. That's why they spend so much time talking about it. That's why there are lots and lots of books written about it, but you don't hear many sermons about it in churches, certainly not in the churches that I went to when I was a Christian. And... You'd have thought that if hell really was that important to the plan of a loving creator God, that it would be a little bit more clear as to what hell entailed and what its purpose was and what your entry qualifications were. And none of these things are really that clear. People have come to their own interpretations from what they've got in the Bible, and they're very certain about their interpretations, but it's not the same and it's not consistent across all stripes of Christianity. And to repeat what I said earlier, it doesn't motivate people into the kingdom. And in fact, in many cases, it does exactly the opposite. So, yeah, hell should go to hell, frankly. All right, then. Um I'll round us out. Uh, I was going to go into a little bit uh, on eternal conscious torment, but I think I'll hold off on that just a bit and just make a very brief uh, opening statement about some of the things that I hope to uh, accomplish during uh, this discussion. Uh, one, I want to talk about uh, what hell is. Uh, because believe it or not, that's not clear. There's, a, you know, when you listen to Christians talk about 
uh, hell. It's it seems to be different things to different people. Um, how do we become worthy of hell? Uh, what 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 is it that actually sends you to hell? Well, that's not that's not uh, the same from one Christian to another. Uh, and so I want to talk about some of uh, our understanding of that and our perspective of that, and you know how how the Christian perspective uh, on that lands with us. Um, I want to talk about um, some of the some of the lasting psychological effects. Uh, hell seems to be a thing that is extremely extremely manipulative and intended to exact the maximum amount of psychological damage. Uh, and I, I want to talk about hell from that psychological perspective. This is, uh, this is something that you will not hear Christians uh, talking about. They do not believe that subject of hell inflicts any psychological damage. And if, they, if it does, they believe it's uh, very justified. And I, I want to talk about that aspect of it. And uh, finally, I want to uh, have some conversation about uh, one of the uh, impacts of hell that makes... Uh, the Christian message uh, falsified, in my opinion. And that is, uh, you cannot have love, not real love, under threat. Uh, and hell is the ultimate threat. And if the, if, the, if the object is to make us love God, I would say that that love is simply impossible once you uh, become under threat of hell. And so I, those are some of the things that I hope to uh, bring out to today, that, and much more. Uh, and I want to give another round of thanks to uh, the uh, folks on the panel and also for the uh, listening audience uh, out there. We had uh, one person uh, write in and say, uh, hey, I, uh, I hope this podcast is three hours long. Screw you, Darren. <laughs> um, I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, did I <laughs> call him out? Um, you know how many you know how many diapers it takes to go three hours? Um, that's a that's a that's a lot of time in the chair. I'm just saying um, our our listeners do not have our best interests at heart. We are just monkeys to dance for their entertainment. Are any of us supposed to actually answer in the affirmative? Yes, we know how many diapers it takes. Are we supposed to? <laughs> I'm just wondering what sound effect that represents. <laughs> you'll you'll hear later. Um, so, and also, it's probably going to go three hours. So, um, that said, I want to start at um, a kind of a definitional place. What is hell? Uh, so, we're we're about to launch into some some uh, interesting conversation, I think. And I think that it can get away from us early if we don't fairly quickly define our term. I mean, when I did the Three Christians podcast uh, last week, we didn't really define the term, and there was a little bit of meandering there. And so, first of all, I just want to step in with uh, my understanding of hell is that, A, it is a place, B, it is uh, prepared as a uh, as punishment. Uh, C. It is uh, torture, and D. It is eternal. Uh, this is this is my understanding of hell uh, coming up. 
if you uh, have not read the blog yet, uh, I didn't actually include this link in the body of the blog, but my first comment on the uh, underneath the blog, uh, there is a link to a video from uh, someone uh, from the Churches of Christ, the denomination that Andrew and I are from. Uh, it's Jeff Jenkins. Uh, I think we know him, <laughs> actually. Um, but um, at at any rate... Uh, you might you might listen to that to get a sense of the type of view uh, that that I grew up on. Uh, so I just want to start off by saying, for me, hell is uh, eternal, uh, a place pre- uh, prepared for eternal conscious torment as a matter of punishment. Uh, most likely, uh, form of that punishment, some form of burning in flame. So basically, the view that the three Christians would have called the idiot view—that's my understanding of hell. <laughs> so, um, you guys just jump in. What is hell? Or at least the being cut off from God. Whether that—I mean—that just was as a Christian not ideal anyway, wasn't it? So, some, at the very least, it was uh, alienation from God, and He could no longer hear you, get to you, save you help you he didn't you could repent as much as you wanted it wouldn't change anything um it was over you'd played your you played your game and you lost and that was your fate and that was it there's no no post-death changing sides that's what i certainly would have added alienation from god for me is what we have now you know we're we're alienated from god and we're uh, you know sinners and the only way to get right with god is to accept his gift. So we're already alienated from God is how I would have put it growing up. But I, I certainly wouldn't have described that as hell. That's just the preamble. That's that's the knell. Hell hell is the big show where the where the punishment really starts. Um Andrew yeah, yeah. Yeah, Oh I'm sorry, Val. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, yeah, that's what I've always thought. The whole uh alienation from God thing, you're not in a relationship with him <clears throat> uh is supposed to cause such immense suffering. Well I'm not suffering. I, I feel pretty good, actually. <laughs> pretty much enjoying life, not having a relationship with God. So if uh, if that's going to change in the afterlife, it's the change that God is going to cause. It's not me, you know? Andrew, you were, uh, you were about to jump in there. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll say that from the from the time that I first started considering hell, and that, that actually goes back uh, to a period long before I was a Christian, uh, because David, in our part of the world, uh, you learn about hell, uh, and, and it may even be your first word. No, never mind how contradictory that is. It is, it is the southern U.S. Uh, but I thought about hell long before I was a Christian. And from my earliest days, even up to today, It was a place that I didn't understand because I grew up on the notion that that hell was this disembodied place, right? It's this it's this other kind of place where I have a a body that I don't have today. Uh, And and so it was always a bit hard for me to wrap my mind around some other kind of body that uh, could be tortured for eternity without breaking down. Right, so so that's the first problem, um, and and then to take that further, I always knew that it was a place that I was accepting without due skepticism. Right, so this is just sort of the thing you grow up on. Uh, 
And then as you, uh, as you have somewhat skeptical thoughts about hell, well, uh, you either have to accept the Christian view or you have to accept the skeptical thoughts. But I was always um, in this sort of catch-22 uh, between a rock and a hard place because hell was this place I was told I would experience. But it was nevertheless a place that I could not go, at least while I was alive. And if those things just on their face don't give us all a little cause for wonder, a little cause for skepticism, then I think there's something broken in us. And it was these kinds of claims, these, these uh, disembodied eternal punishment claims, and, and this place that I could not go, but I would nevertheless be, uh, be subjected to for eternity, right? It was, it was those kinds of claims that eventually helped me find the Christian exit. And today, hell is still a place that I don't understand. And I'll say that after listening to last week's Skeptics and Seekers, I didn't get any closer. How about you, Brian? Did, what, what is hell for you in your neck of the woods? Sure. So I'll, I'll answer the question in, in two ways. When, when I was a Christian, hell was, was the proverbial door number two. Your, your entire life was a test. You owed it all to God. God wanted certain things from you, and if you didn't deliver by the time you died, you stood in front of him, and if you did the right things, you went to heaven, and if you did the wrong things, you went to hell. And once you got there, it was supposed to be horrible, agony, eternal torment, likely with fire. The devil with his pitchfork and his horns was there. It was just someplace you really, really, really didn't want to go, so you better get in line. Uh, and I just teased the, the second way I want to answer the question is, is now that I'm out, now that I'm a skeptic, uh, and atheist, what is clear to me is what hell is, is a, a, it's a story. It's a mishmash of a bunch of concepts from many different cultures. Uh, the actuality of it being a place, either physical or spiritual, is completely unevidenced. Uh, and what it serves is it's the proverbial stick. It's the stick in the, in the Christian story. It's how they're trying to incentivize your behavior to get in line and do what God wants and to do what whatever Christian that's throwing it at you wants you to do. Matthew, did, how does how does the UK see hell? I mean, it's much more as Sarah described it. Uh, when I was growing up as a as a young lad in uh, missionary Africa, it was very much a hell and damnation, uh, forever tortured torment kind of hell. But when I moved to the UK as a as a young adult, the teaching on hell was very very different, and it was very ambiguously described as its separation from God. But that that tells you nothing material uh, about hell. And it, it leaves so much open to interpretation that it's practically a meaningless description of hell. So when I exited Christianity, my views on hell weren't solidified at all. I didn't have any any firm belief on hell whatsoever because as the aforementioned teaching does it doesn't leave you with anything firm to believe so when hell just wasn't a factor for me then but thinking about hell as a child and it being taught there in the traditional view of hell it's it's quite there's it, just like i said earlier there's just nothing 
um, motivating about about that version of hell. And what bothers me so much about that form of hell is it usually comes packaged with a form of Christianity that denies us our own free wills, Calvinism specifically. You know, that that teaches a hell, I mean, that teaches about a, a God that doesn't even give us a free will to to choose you know it's a god that has control over the minute of every bit of our lives and he has for um he's a what's the word he's um, decided up in front what is going to happen what we're going to decide and so our destination of hell is predetermined by god anyway and that is doubly monstrous quite frankly yeah so already uh just with the the, the views that we we've been talking about we we all have had maybe slightly different versions of hell i think andrew and i uh had the same ideas of hell um in our christian journeys uh interesting all of the three christians last week had the same view of hell early on and and they developed into these more uh, academic views of hell and so it, it strikes me that the, the natural view of hell, the most common view of hell um, is the view that I'm about to uh, express a little bit more fully and then um, f- for some reason uh, it, that maybe we'll talk about, the world has grown out of that view um, you'd be surprised at how hard it was to find someone uh, to come on the podcast last week and express the traditional view of hell. Uh, in fact, I couldn't, <laughs> and so that's why we didn't have it. Um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give a small case for the traditional view. If you guys will indulge me a moment, um, right now I just want to I just want to give you four passages. Uh, I won't explicate over them long. I just want to share for those who are not familiar with the with the uh, biblical passages on this uh what it has to say um I, I just want you to hear what it is we're talking about and what has so uh it, it affected and influenced us uh and maybe you can understand um how one might come to this understanding so uh, just four passages also i i can assure you there are many more there are more um, these four, I, I'm not trying to convince anyone. I just, I just want you to kind of hear the Bible the way it was taught to us, the way rational people all over the world hear the Bible to this day. So Revelation, I'm going to start at the end, uh, chapter 20. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 9. A third uh, angel followed them and said uh, in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image uh, and receives its mark on their forehead, or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever. And ever, there will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, 
or anyone who receives the mark of its name. That's Revelation. Um, it's okay. It's referring to Trump and a MAGA hat, so you're fine. Well, that's <laughs> Trump. That's Trump in his vote. Mark of the. Is, is that the, yeah, is that the devil the, and his uh, angels? Um, yeah. Matthew uh, twenty-five forty-one. I'm actually going to hold that one off for a moment. This got a little bit out of order. Revelation. Um, Something. Revelation. I'm missing one of my uh, passages, so I will just uh, leave it. Uh, Matthew 25, 41. Uh, then he will uh, say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are accused, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, Luke. Um, Andrew is going to talk about a different aspect of this passage, but Luke 16, uh, the story of the uh, rich man uh, and Lazarus. Uh, hey, Dave. Yeah. Matthew's, Matthew's prepared to read that whole passage if you want him to. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to let you guys swing around to it. I'm just, okay. I'm just focusing okay. on uh, a little snippet here because I know it'll be covered Fair before. Um, in Hades, uh, when he was in uh, torment, he looked up and saw uh, Abraham far away, and Lazarus uh, at his side. He uh, called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Uh, send me Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. So uh, three passages. Uh, we'll, we'll let that do. Three passages uh, that describe hell, uh, or that talk about hell in in the Luke passage is one that actually narrates hell. And it does not matter to me if you say, well, it's a parable. The parable still has to be about something uh, that's, that's real for people to understand the illusion. So, again, maybe uh, we get more into that uh, later. I will be glad to debate uh, with you in the blogs uh, if you want to take me up on the interpretation of any of these. Right now, it's not so much about interpreting interpreting these passages about letting you hear just the plain words that the Bible says. And there are many other words. Uh, it talks about a place that is prepared. Now, it's this is not a room that we lock from the inside. Okay? This is a place God prepared. <laughs> All right? This is not a natural consequence. A natural consequence is, oops, I slipped and fell, and now I broke my hip. No, this is a this is a thing. This is about as natural a consequence as saying, "Oh, well, my head was lopped off in a guillotine." It's the natural consequence of stealing bread. No, it's not. There's nothing natural about that consequence. This is a very contrived consequence. It's a place prepared, if you believe these words. And who is it prepared for? Well, it was prepared for the devil among others, and his angels, the devil and his angels. God prepared a place of punishment for the devil. We, we get all of that in, in a single passage. What kind of place did God prepare for the devil? A, a room that's locked from the inside where you are just emotionally sad about rejecting God? Is, is, is this really what you think the Bible uh, is saying? Is this really what you think uh, the writer of Matthew is getting at? Is this the faith that awaits the devil? 
that's the place where he puts the people that he is displeased with. That is hell. And so whatever it is you think God prepared for the devil and his angels, that has to correspond with what you're saying about your view of hell. Uh, And so uh, I I think I'll stop there and uh, let someone step in. I just wanted to give those who are not familiar with um, uh, the biblical uh, passages a notion of just why someone might come uh, to the conclusion that hell is an eternal conscious torment. Uh, probably a fire and uh, or similar suffering. Uh, there is lots of material on this, and uh, I'm going to hand it over to whoever is man or woman enough to take the mic. I'll step in if you want. I've got it. Yes! Fight! <laughs> uh, sorry, who is that I'm competing with there? Oh, no one important, no one. don't worry. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. Well, so, I beat you to it, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> So, David, following up on on what you just said there, a, a sort of a standard view of hell, um, even if you know the details uh, can differ slightly. Um, you know, in the previous hell podcast, uh, one of your uh, Christian guests, uh, Chris Date, said that uh, he thinks the Bible provides no basis for such views, um, and yet. I mean, we know that many of the greatest intellects in the church found basis for those type of views. I mean, some of the smartest people closest to the original texts. And so, I mean, you had uh, uh, even in the church history, St. Augustine saw hell as eternal torment. And even the saved uh, will have a front row seat to enjoy the show. And he also said that those who die in infancy and are mentally disabled, they'll be damned to hell on inheriting original sin. You had uh, Aquinas also endorsed eternal hell. You had, uh, you know, other luminaries, uh, Tatian, uh, Theophilus, Irenaeus, um, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, uh, Hippolytus of Rome, Felix uh, Minicius. Uh, I probably butchered some of the names, but I mean, the list goes on for those. You've got the Protestant tradition, you know, the famous Westminster Confession, uh, where, you know, they say, but the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torment and punished uh, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So you've, you've got people who are extremely smart and who are trying, who are most motivated to understand God's message, taking that out of his message, which of course brings up the problem of the fact that God could leave a message of such importance that unclear. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the, I mean it, the whole thing impinges on his character to begin with, because there are people who reject Christianity, and even Christians reject the doctrine of eternal torment because they can't square that with the idea of a good God. So his character really hinges a lot on the nature, the existence of hell, if it exists in the nature of that hell. So this is like if somebody were writing an auto, uh, or writing a biography of me, and it gave me the first draft, and I looked at it, and yeah, okay, that's all right, that's right. Then I come to a point where it talks about investigators finding all these, these in, um, forms of evidence that point to me possibly being a serial killer. And they can make a pretty good case of it, but not a perfect case, 
and then it just goes back on to all the accurate stuff about my character, my life. And I look at that part and say, yeah, and I sign off on that. Like, why no rational person would sign off on a, on a biography that could be interpreted as placing you, impugning your character so horribly? But apparently God's done this uh, with the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's literally no excuse. I mean, you know, if Jesus is his son on earth, he had the perfect opportunity to clear it up once and for all. We shouldn't be having to drag out stuff from the most crazy bit of the Bible, the revelation things. I mean, nobody understands what half of that means anyway. And we shouldn't have to be deciphering it from this to, as you say, the most important message to mankind. It's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, it really is. I can't even take it And I'm not, I'm not even saying that my view of the literature <laughs> A place called hell is correct. Absolutely, I'm just saying that that is that is a reasonable view. For, you know, and to totally. listen to to Christians talk about it today, to see some of the comments on the board, you got to be an idiot to to have that view. We uh, get accused of straw manning, but it was definitely the mainstream view until very recently. It might be the so 2010 now, but you know, it really definitely was. What if you if you add um, uh, interviewed the average Christian on the street, that's what they would have said. I'm absolutely convinced of it. It's not, it's just, you know, some academics and now the YouTube and internet and all the rest of it has um, helped circulate more palatable versions of it. That's all. That's all that's happened. So this is, this for me is the, is the biggest problem with hell. The notion that uh, an all-powerful creator, uh, the one who chose his words and chose his media, passes down a story about hell. And and the plain and simple reading of that story, uh, uh, you know, is, is, it's pretty plain to, um, to, to first, second, third graders, right? And if you think we're not teaching hell to first, second, and third graders, you haven't been to the churches David and I went to. Uh, but we, we have these pretty plain passages that teach eternal conscious torment, right? And, and, some sometime after that, when you you know when you when you head off to college or or you head off to seminary, uh, there's this there's this different view of hell. Now, I'm not arguing that our understanding of topics doesn't deepen, and and it's not enriched over time. Certainly, certainly that is the case, and and Christians argue that that's what that's what happens here with hell, right, is, is that we have an early understanding, and that understanding somehow evolves uh, in, into a deeper, uh, better understanding of hell. But I don't think that is, I don't think that's comparable here, because when we evolve understanding of, uh, of the scientific method, or, or as Val was talking about in his opening, uh, as we evolve an understanding of mathematics, there's no point at which our early understanding of, of uh, order of operations or of algebraic axioms or whatever, there's, there's no point at which we throw those things out and we say, well, that foundation actually wasn't any good. Uh, you know, it's not eternal conscious torment. It's, it's annihilation at some point. And, and so I do think that the problem with Christianity today is that there was a plain understanding of hell uh, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? And and we do have 
that past understanding of religious figures who understood hell to be a place uh, where the bad guys, the people that weren't on their team, were going to go and suffer forever. Yeah, and I just... And, oh, sorry. Go ahead, David. I just no, wanted to ahead. add to that, that um, I, I think part of my gripe here right up front is just the the affectation that the smart people have grown past the natural reading. Um, and the fact of the matter is, what they are acknowledging is that the traditional view is the natural reading. That's the reading that everybody gets when they read it. Right? That's the understanding that, um, that people get from it. And I think that if you're going to reject something that is so universally the natural reading of a, a text in literature, you have to have a really good reason to do that. Uh, and I don't think uh, that Christians have expressed a good enough reason. I do want to say that Chris Date is very uh, articulate uh, in the statement of his views, but it's not good enough to uh, make the natural reading seem absurd somehow. The, the natural reading still f seems like the natural and most uh, reasonable way to read that particular literature. So, um, you know, for anyone who has that view of hell, um, I, I, I want to just say, don't, don't listen <laughs> to the intellectuals who tell you you must be crazy. Uh, you are not crazy. You are, you are actually reading, you're reading the words in their most natural way. I found it quite interesting that those who have abandoned that uh, traditional reading of hell, I don't think I've seen any one of them or heard any one of them say that they find that, that version of hell to be abhorrent. They've just said that they can't, can no longer find support for it in, in the Bible. And um, so that as an, as as an aside, uh, one, one book that did uh, influence uh, my thinking of hell as an adult i was a, a youth leader at the time and i can't remember who wrote it it was a book called the road to hell i think i had an orangey ready color on it obviously and um, so about 20 years ago now i think i would have read it and i'm quite happy for some of the more knowledgeable people on the call to correct me or even any listener correct me this is from the book that, that i read the road to hell the thrust of the book was that all of Jesus's teaching on hell was directed towards his disciples. He didn't preach or talk about hell outside of it being a closed group with just him and his disciples or maybe his disciples and a few followers. It wasn't, he didn't preach about hell to, uh, to the wider public. And the, the thrust, if I remember correctly, because this is what my takeaway from it was, was that that those who are in leadership need to fear hell the most because the whole the, the i think one of the verses that it pulled out was you know it'd be better if a millstone was tied around your neck than you lead one of these lambs of mine astray and uh, the interpretation put on that kind of passage was if you're a church leader or of any description and you're causing people to to be misled or to fall away or whatever then hell is going to be a very special place for you and i found that as a position of a youth leader in my 20s late 20s probably to be genuinely quite concerning and for a while after reading that book i was worried it put fear into me 
And that seems to be a really unhealthy place to be if you're trying to do something good for people. So you actually have given us the natural segue into uh, the next topic that I wanted to tackle. Uh, how, how do you become worthy of hell? Um, there might be some passion uh, in this segment of the conversation, so passion alert. Um, I have some. When I when I listened to the podcast, I mean, when I was doing the podcast, it's really hard to listen to a podcast when you're on on a podcast. Just ask anyone who's on a podcast. But when I when I went back and listened, um, I was horrified um, at some of the responses um, that I was getting and. You know, they were saying it very comfortably, like it was like it was not, um, like like it was not crazy. <laughs> and um, I had to I had to question my own sanity as I was listening to it. And so I just want to uh, see if I can get some conversation around this from the time when you were a Christian uh, and in your time of listening to Christians talk since you've been a, a, a Christian. How does a person become worthy of hell? What sends a person to hell? There, there are different answers. One answer is it's the sin that you do. Another answer is it's the sin that uh, you have inherited. Um, what, what is your understanding, uh, Matthew, since you kind of segued us into this? What sends you to hell? Um. Well, I'm going to answer on a tangent, uh, really. Um, we're in lockdown here at home uh, through this wretched virus that's, that's out there. And one of the things that has been expressed on my, certainly on my TV news recently is concern about increases in domestic uh, abuse situations and people who are at home with a partner who they fear. And you know, how do we look after those? How do we keep those people safe? And those people should be allowed to leave the house on a more regular basis if it's for their own sanity and for their well-being. Well, if you're a person in that position and you've got a partner at home who is physically violent to you, what is it that causes you to go to the hospital? Is it what you've done or is it what they've done? And it's my my answer is exactly the same about hell. What is it that causes you to go hell? Well, it's the bastard that created it to put you there. Quite frankly. Okay, um, Sarah, it's the bastard that created us. What is that your understanding? <laughs> my my early understanding was that it was the default position that's where you were headed it was you know the fall of man until you realize adam and eve aren't a real thing but you uh, you just assume it's that's where you're headed that's what the good news is you're going to be saved from uh, the fate that awaits you so yeah, but, uh, what but was, then as what was going to send you there i mean was there in your understanding was there ever a set up where we weren't going to go but then something happened and now we are going to go what's or or was it just as you well, say I guess the it was default the, position you're born to go to hell yeah pretty much yeah as soon as you get to the age of accountability was my understanding of it so uh, very young kids were spared 
uh, if you you were also spared if you uh, didn't know about Jesus, like you were some far-flung place, you'd never heard of him, that was okay as well. Um, and then I think it's as you as you get older, the, your uh, sphere grows of the people you would include. So you think, well, those who kind of see, are seeking God but die a bit early, then they would be included. And then, you know, it's, it's when, you're f- when a close relative or friend dies and you suddenly think, hang on a minute, they weren't a Christian. Really? Do I think they're, get, they're now in hell? And that's when the wake-up call uh, kind of starts to happen because until that point, it's a little bit of, a, of an abstract concept. It's for the wicked and those are always other people. So you never really... Uh, internalize it until something or somebody close to you uh, maybe dies and I, I think I that's when you start I want to push you further though um, because mm. you, yeah well you're the nice one here <laughs> and I gotta get you past some of that oh, um, I, can turn, I can turn so um, you said uh, something that I also saw in the comments um, this week about the age of accountability once you reach this mythical age of accountability so let's just go ahead and say the age of accountability is 12 for the, for the sake of argument. Um, so in your mind, uh, when, you, when you were a Christian, your understanding is what happens the moment you turn 12? That sends it's you a hell. race. It's a race against the clock to get you to say that sinner's prayer. I mean, it's genius, really. Not only does it make the, uh, the you know somebody who starts to believe fear it and convert, but it keeps those converted on their toes to try and convert more because you've got to keep people coming in uh, and you've got to worry them that they've got blood on their hands because they haven't you know uh, led their friends to Christ and things. So the whole thing is just fear-based, and so, so that's me, what I understood of it. Let me just let me just make sure I understand. So with the moment a person turns that magical age whatever that age is if they get hit by a bus the second yeah. after they turn to the age of accountability they go to hell is that your only if they've heard only if they've heard about hell though isn't that what you said sir if they've uh no that yeah i mean if they've heard about it and, and outwardly rejected it which just probably means didn't buy it um then yeah they would have gone to hell for sure yeah um, See, now, for me, that's the bad, biggest man. argument about uh, missionaries. You know, if that is true, why have missionaries? Because if you don't go into these remote exactly. parts of the world <laughs> and try to convert them, they're all going to go to heaven. Awesome. Win. But the sheer act of going and telling them the message means that you are, by default, sending some people to hell. Well, actually, yeah. mine would have been the, Count, the Calvinist view on that. Um, there were no people uh, who did not know God and had an, a proper excuse for it. And so that that person simply didn't exist. We were stupid, weren't we? Weren't yeah. We really were. So that's what we were so <laughs> Andrew, Andrew was just as stupid. <laughs> and he's older than me. Look, there'll, there'll be plenty after listening to this podcast that argue us to live. But it seems to me that there's a, another problem here that – that I've uh, that I've been dying to bring up. <laughs> so, one of the things that that we six, five, four, I, I don't know. I lost I lost count at the beginning. Obviously, um, one of the things that we're going to be accused of is is somehow equivocating on justice. That we don't believe in justice. That no matter what someone does, uh, we'll give them a pass. But. That's not quite true. And even Christians, even Christians think that 
local government, however you define that, whatever, whatever body of human laws you find yourself in, even Christians think that God ordained that local government. Now, maybe not all Christians. David, I know that uh, you and I have both preached that sermon. You know, God, or, God ordained the authorities over you and you, and you should be, uh, you know, somehow in, in subjection to those authorities. Okay, that's fine. But here's what it means for hell. And this should bother every Christian. It is not the case that people on this earth are never punished. In fact, some people are punished quite a lot. Some people are punished far beyond what they deserve. Right? And yet, even in those cases, that punishment is not going to be good enough for God. So let's, uh, you, you, stole, uh, you, know, you stole a pair of Nikes and you wore them out and you didn't take them back and you never paid for them. Okay? And then you got caught. And the local authorities did whatever, uh, you know, did whatever they do to exact some justice. Right. They they sent you to community service or they put you in jail for a month or, wait, wait. or, is, or is this person a black male or a, or a white? Person? No, he got shot. No, there are no because <laughs> it was a black male who stole some Nikes. He up, he up in you know, uh, fed. He, he, you, know, so. you, you know, look, you know what's going to happen if you do that, because you and I are going to end up on uh, on social justice and being social warriors. And so. So, yeah, he got shot. and I'm just going to leave it there. But, but here's the truth. Here's the truth. This is the thing that Christians believe. This is the thing that Christians believe is that government has the right to exact punishment for ethical wrongs. But even that judgment is not good enough for the Christian God. And if you're not bothered by that, you're a little bit broken. So uh, this is a this is a point that I um, had. I've only thought about in a kind of a sarcastic way. Uh, it's the annihilation view that brings the, the sarcasm out in me. So it's a person who uh, is guilty of some crime and he is or, or, or she is put to death, burned at the stake, let's say. And so they die and uh, the day of judgment comes and God resurrects them puts them through a kangaroo court and says, ah, turns out you're guilty. Death by fire. So he, <laughs> they already had a death by fire. <laughs> he digs them up again to give them another death by fire. That just seems, on the face of it, um, wrong. <laughs> Somehow. Look, even we don't allow, even humans don't allow double jeopardy. Yeah, I would uh, jump in to say that, I mean, this is just almost no matter what view of hell you take, the eternal torment view or the, you know, dig you up and retort you again for a while view, it's just um, the contrast with how civilized people think about and run about uh, and run societies is just so great. Uh, I mean, like, for, for like enlightened societies, basically, the idea is that um, that we we allow you know a thousand flowers to bloom. Everybody's free to follow their conscience as best they can, uh, to come up with their best understanding of reality as best they can, and and so we all allow for 
religious pluralism, you know, or and and the existence of secularism, etc. And like nobody would say that, for instance, we should take non-Christians and burn them at the stake or throw them into uh, an isolation cell. Uh, I mean, everybody would rise up against that. Most Christians, front of the line. Everything that's horrible. Um, and yet, the test of whether you get into heaven or whether you're punished with hell is essentially that. It, it's, uh, are you a Christian? Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? If not, well, you're going to be killed or tortured or potentially tormented forever. Uh, the gulf between that type of reasoning and, and our own is just crazy, and that's, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't hold up to the test of consistency. I mean, by our normal lights, a demon would come up with those type of uh, consequences. Mm -hmm. Right, and adding original sin to that equation, you know, adding, uh, adding the sin of Adam into this doesn't help, right? Uh, because the notion of inherited sin is, uh, is, is even less coherent. So, you know, you can say, okay, yeah, he, he stole a pair of shoes or, uh, or, or, you know, he, he, pawned his, he pawned his mom's engagement ring. Or, or uh, you know, he just didn't clean the chalkboard at school when he was told to, right? And, and so maybe we wouldn't uh, punish eternally for that. But he inherited the sin of Adam. Well, isn't that, right. aren't, we, aren't we suffering from too many explanations? So I, a moment ago I asked, um, uh, how do we become worthy of hell? Brian, chime in here. It's Aren't there too many explanations? Uh, so w one explanation is because you did a thing. Okay, well, if that's true, that's enough explanation. L let's stop there and address that. But then, but that's not enough explanation for the Christian. No, it's because Adam did a thing. Okay, well, is, is that, it, it, are we worthy of hell because of what Adam did or because we did? Because it, saying both uh, is incoherent uh, at that point. And then, even that's not enough explanation. No, no, no. You are uh, a sinner because you have uh, a sin nature. You you were born with a sin nature. Um, that you have the inclination to sin even pre-birth. Um, uh, Dale, I know that he will comment on this further, but he has a, a theory that we may have chosen sin even before we uh, entered the womb. That that. Some at what? some point in yes at some point in heaven, uh, before we uh, you know the soul making machine cranks out souls and then they're kind of given a choice of uh, you know do 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 you want to, to uh, go to earth and uh, go through you know what however this is done in, in Dale's vision in that some people may have chosen a sin nature prior to entering. Uh, the womb. Uh, so this is. Uh, so once I again, this don't is, get that. I, well, I'm sorry. How look, can you make a conscious choice when you're not even conscious? Well, but no, yeah. no, no, no. You're not making a conscious choice when you're conscious. This is uh, something that another um, uh, commenter um, made on the board. This is to misunderstand Dale's position. Dale's position is not that you made the choice in the womb, but that you made the choice before you entered the womb. So. Um, 
because you're a soul, right? You're a living soul um, before you come here. You're kind of sent through the soul shoot through the womb uh, into the, you know, I don't know how this whole thing works. I need that and the evidence for this is what exactly? Look, it's a, well, it's where's a, the evidence for this? It's, it's just a, Looney Tunes. It's a theory. Dale, at, it's the, not at this it's moment, Looney Tunes. at this moment, is writing a 2,000 word response and I for make, one look forward to it uh, but I'll, make it but, 200 please 2,000 is too many you, you can't are, explain it in 200 well, I, I, I would it's love, too complicated yeah, so Brian yeah, aren't, don't we have too many explanations for, for this thing w- wouldn't one suffice doesn't three kind of muddy the water yeah, I I think this this reveals one of the big weaknesses, right? Is all we have are people who don't have access to the goods doing their best interpretations and then telling us about it. It's all secondhand. It's all hearsay. Mm-hmm. Nobody's been to hell and come back to tell us what it was like. It would be like all of us arguing about how good a restaurant is when we've never been in it. It's just it, and so because you can't you can't take their theories and bounce them off reality. They all float out there as as you know unproven false. And that's where I think they're making their mistake, right? Is something isn't true because you haven't yet proven it false. If you're making a claim, bring the evidence, bring the argument and show me why what you're saying is true. In Dale's theory, it, it screams as, yeah, or I get the criticism that it's not fair that I have a sin nature where I didn't have a choice. Let me patch over that hole with some theory about what my soul was doing before I was even born. There's no evidence for that. There's no argument for that. There's no reason to believe that that's true. It's a what if story to patch over one hole, but now you just opened a gaping hole on the other side of your theodicy. You opened a gaping hole before you before you ever got into human life. There's this there's this idea that as humans we will die and and we will be judged, and the people that live in heaven they won't be able to make decisions anymore that impact their their sort of uh, their sort of eternal destination. Right? Once once you're in heaven, you're you're there forever. Well. I would just like to know what sort of rationalization it takes to say that before you were ever embodied, right? Before you, before you ever occupied this uh, uh, this this single-celled organism, right at right at the moment of conception, what possible kind of place could God's eternity be, where souls get to make a decision about being evil? In that place, I mean, is, is this the, the kind of decision? Uh, is this the kind of decision that the fallen angels made? And and if so, then then why go through this human rigmarole? Why not cast those souls out uh, right then with with the with the fallen angels? I I simply cannot get on board with the idea that there's that there's this this soul area out there prior to 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 human existence well i don't get on board with this whole idea <laughs> you know even even, even uh, uh with us uh, being alive but what sort of place are we talking about where these disembodied souls get to choose good and evil and how's that choice made i mean did they did they steal a cookie out of the cosmic oatmeal cookie jar I, Damn, the, that's the, what it was yeah, the, this, I, I don't understand the story, and I defy anyone to make sense of it. So I think that what we're circling around is the idea of justice. When you, when you listen at Christians tell us 
how we inherit hell. None of their explanations sounds just to us. And so, Val, I want you to talk about uh, justice and our sense of justice and um, maybe maybe why it seems so violated. Let me just set, set you up a little bit. Um, if, if we are punished uh, it, with hell for choices we made before we came to Earth, but we have no access to those choices, we have no memory of those choices... That seems that seems wholly unfair. And I've also got to think that if we were in heaven and we made a choice about Earth, that we couldn't have been completely uh, informed <laughs> because we were there and not here. Um, so that, sem- that seems unfair. If we are sent to hell because of what our forefathers did, if that makes us worthy of hell, uh, that seems uh, wholly unfair Uh to us. And so that, uh, again, my intuition says that's unjust. And even if, even if you send me to hell because of what I did, uh, I would, uh, I would make the more uh, difficult and more interesting and more fun argument that it's still unjust. Uh, because quite frankly, I'm, I'm not a proponent uh, of the death penalty. Now let me, let me step back a hair. Uh, I am kind of a proponent of the death penalty in some situations simply because we humans are limited. And there are, there are some people who are uh, in such a condition that we cannot, we cannot help them. We cannot reform them. We cannot repair them. And we also cannot let them run free in society. And in some societies, we simply don't have the resources to house them for the rest of a potentially long life. Now, what do you do with that person who is criminally, insanely dangerous to society and you can't house him and you can't let him go? This is a terrible, terrible, terrible set of choices. And under the, the, the worst conditions, I, I must say, yes, okay, I can understand at least why we might have the death penalty. I cannot understand why a god would have a death penalty, though. Because all of the options that are not available to us are available to that God. And so there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing that I can do that would warrant a death penalty from a God who has the ability to repair me. Or has the ability to house me uh, and keep me safe from my uh, insanity. Or has some other ability that we do not have today. And so, uh, Val, what I'm saying is that there's zero... <laughs> um, uh, uh, doctrines of, of hell from the Christian that I have heard that ring just to me. Can you can you talk about uh, that injustice? Because I know that you have uh, some things to say about justice in our natural sense of justice. Yeah, well, I would uh, I look at it. I think it's useful to look at the um, the character of hell. Um, First, from the traditional classic natural reading view that you've been talking about it, <clears throat> that many Christians have seen it, the eternal conscious torment, whether we're talking by fire or otherwise. I mean, for instance, even I believe Dale goes in for eternal conscious torment, if not by fire, more of the separation from God and quarantine version. So I think it's useful, though, to start with a, a sort of a classical view of it and work back from that to see whether 
the Christians attempt to pare back from that version save it ultimately and um, there is there, I think people Christians included uh, who think uh, like an eternal torment is just and fair and would come from a just fair wise being they, I just don't think they really contemplated the character of eternal torment and so uh, in an attempt to kind of help any Christians or other people who haven't really thought this through very well, uh, let's just go through that a bit with some, you know, perhaps like a thought experiment. So the first thing I'd say is that, um, uh, well, there's, there's a great section, uh, a well-known section in James Joyce's a Portrait of uh, the Argus as a Young Man, where Stephen is listening to the Hellfire sermons from Father uh, Arnold. And there, that's just an amazing section of the book. Uh, it's, a, it's a depiction of a Dante-esque hell. I'm sure uh, uh, people listening, some have uh, read it, but it's just a beautiful writing um, and, and just trying to conjure the worst place imaginable to end up in. But uh, one of the uh, aspects of hell that Father Arnell settles on is uh, the problem of eternity. And I'm just gonna grab a, a little bit of his description where he says, uh, Father now says, last and crowning torture of all the tortures of that awful place is the eternity of hell. Eternity, oh dread and dire word, eternity. What mind of a man can understand it? And remember, it is an eternity of pain. Even though the pains of hell were not, terribly as, were not terrible as they are, yet they would become infinite as they are destined to last forever. But while they are everlasting, they are at the same time, as you know, intolerably intense, unbearably extensive. To bear even the sting of an insect for all eternity would be a dreadful torment. What must it be then to bear the manifold tortures of hell forever, forever, for all eternity, not for a year or for an age, but forever, trying to imagine the awful meaning of this? So let's just take it a tiny step further with a, a perhaps goofy thought experiment <clears throat> to start to wrap our heads around it. And so let's take the example of a snail. Like the first thing, infinite punishment is never proportionate to a finite crime. Uh, we often say this and we mortals are only capable of finite crimes. So infinite punishment can never be appropriate for us. But the only reason that that isn't crystal clear to everyone is that we have at best a very weak grasp of the concept of infinity. Infinity. So um, uh, there's a great sort of, um, I think, idea somebody came up with uh, in a past uh, board I saw years ago that I always liked. And so a graphic illustration would be to take the idea of a uh, watching a traveling snail. Um, now, a snail, garden snail travels at about 0 0.047 kilometers per hour, apparently. And so it would take about a day to traverse about two kilometers, uh, and if I got the calculations right. But to reacquaint ourselves with just how slowly a snail moves, I actually suggest that whoever's listening, Google just the video snail and slug race. I actually encourage you to Google it right now and just pull it up and look at it for a moment while I'm talking. Um, because if you, if you pull that up, or even after the podcast, whatever, and you skip 40, 14 seconds past the opening text, you'll see a snail racing a slug. And that's going to give you a pretty good idea of just 
how slow these things move. And so once you start watching, you realize pretty quickly it would be an act of labor to even watch a snail moving for just 15 minutes, just to concentrate on it, or for an hour, let alone a whole day. You just start to, it would be labor to do so. So now just imagine, you know, as you're watching the video, being stung by an insect just for the entirety of that video alone. So let alone a whole day or a week or a year. So back to the snails. Let's say, let's say this snail that we're talking about can move across the entire universe. So the snail traverses a distance of about 93 billion light years, so the diameter of our years, uh, the diameter of our universe, in just some unimaginably long time. And then it retraces its steps, returning to its starting point, and then it does this again and again and again, so say 100, 100 trillion times. Now imagine that, you know, Hitler has been subject to hellish torment for this entire time. Now, I think most of us would say that even Hitler would have been punished sufficiently for his crimes by that time. I mean, like, if not, I suggest your compassion module is sort of short-circuited there. I would have thought he would have been punished enough far before then. But the traditional Christian doctrine disagrees. It says that not only does, this just, does justice demand that he be punished for this already ridiculously long time of the snail's travel, but it demands that his punishment will have barely begun. And after our snail has repeated his entire back-and-forth journey of Google Plex of times, um, uh, Google, on my understanding, is 10 to the 100th power, a Google Plex is uh, 10 to the Google power, Hitler's punishment will still, still barely have begun. So now consider somebody like Gandhi, who by and large led an exemplary life of compassion and championing the rights of his people, but Gandhi uh, knew of Christianity. He didn't buy it. He remained a Hindu. But he, too, will be punished for not accepting Christ as a savior for all this time. And in fact, for an unimaginably longer period. So, and, and that, and also, from Christian doctrine, we are all worthy of this punishment. And if this doesn't begin to seem just a had excessive to you, uh, all I can say, you must have lost your moral compass some time ago. Um, so, I don't know, that's, and, and that sort of leads, by the way, to the questions of uh, how you end up in hell, where Christians are always trying to, of course, they're always trying to build the firewall between uh, God's moral culpability of putting people in hell and us, and they always whip out free will as their sort of universal spot remover to fix everything, uh, which it doesn't. I, so they'll say, of course, God doesn't put you in hell. Uh, you choose to go to hell somehow. You choose to reject the offer. Uh, it's on you that you uh, end up in hell choosing it as your fate, which is, I mean, if you just go back to contemplating that snare of suffering for as long as that snail moved across the universe all that time, is ludicrous. I mean, the, the, the concept of eternal suffering is so, when you, when you think about it, is so catastrophic and mind-shattering. For me, it would literally be impossible for me to choose hell if there was any other option. Uh, I hope death. Uh, there, there's this um, torture uh, device, supposedly, in Rome, the brazen brass bull, where you're burned inside, right? It's a brass mm -hmm. bull, side opens yeah, I know up. Of it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're put nude into this brass bowl, it shuts, uh, fire is lit under the bowl, 
uh, and then you begin uh, to roast inside uh, uh, on the bull. And then as you're as you roast, you rock back and forth, and it makes the bull look like it's moving a bit. And then uh, the, the smoke from your flesh comes out of its nostrils. And then as you scream, there's like a pipe mechanism that turns your scream into something that sounds like the bellows of a bull. All this for the entertainment of those watching. You know, if somebody said, look, you got your choice of eternal torment of any kind of boredom, you know, of like sitting in a, a cell eternally or dying via the brazen bull. I'm like, where's the bull? Get me in there as fast as you can. Because uh, I'm contemplating the idea of, of eternal torment. So the idea that when the Christian tries to tell me that I would buy, it's my choice that I would choose eternal torment and somehow also be fixed in my mind that I will always keep choosing it eternally. All that's telling me is that your doctrine is utterly out of touch with the reality of human psychology. You have reduced human beings to comic book characters in order to mollify your own cognitive dissonance, but it doesn't work on us. So before handing this off to Brian, I, I just wanted to um, add something for the listener in case you missed it from last week's show. I ask uh, each of the people, um, is there anything that God could do by way of punishment that you would say is too much? That's, you know, is, is there is there a limit uh, for you? And whereas Chris Date, uh, you know, has has the least horrible view of, of, of hell uh, in that group. Uh, he said, nevertheless, uh, no, there, uh, he, he would not impose uh, such a limit on God. He just happens to think that uh, annihilation is the right view. But if, if the view was something else, something more horrible, eternal conscious torment, he would not uh, use his human intuition to think, no, that is that is unjust or that is too much. And I, I just wanted to say that, to say that I, I think that in, in a way, the Christian moral conscience, the normal way that me, we mean the word, has, has been seared um, when they talk about hell. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that they are somehow psychopathic people. But when they're defending their faith, uh, they do not speak of justice in in a way that we would normally think of justice, and they it's it's as if they have lost touch of their sense of what horrible is. Uh, and so, as you were describing that, Val, I was I was chuckling in the background. Um, I was chuckling because the, the the imagery you were using was so clear, so so. Uh, there was there's this, this type of obviousness there that anyone listening to it can grasp what you're saying, and yet the Christian will will um, will not see that. And that I think that gives me uh, the most pause when I have these conversations with Christians is that we have, you know, at least for the moment of this conversation, a an uncrossable chasm between our idea of what is good and what is not good. So uh, I just wanted yeah. to add that. Um, I, would, I would just put a, a cap on that to say that that's one of the more diabolical aspects of hell, is that the cruelty of the 
doctrine itself acts as a barrier to belief for many people, and so it both encourages unbelief and then punishes you for it. Yeah, so Brian, uh, why why are you choosing to go to hell? <laughs> Obviously because I, I'm a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I thought Val did a good job of talking about the justice. There's one other piece about the justice that I think wasn't mentioned, and it's the idea of an opt-in. I mean, I can I, to try to steel man the Christian, I can get the idea that God is the boss, God created everything, God gave you your life, you can take it away. There are details there that I would argue against, but I, I can get behind the, the overall 100,000-foot picture there. But, like, think about the other things that I accept. So I'm a, I'm a, you know, a, a citizen of the United States, I don't agree with all the laws, but I'm a good citizen and I opt in. And if I speed or if I do drugs or whatever and I break the law, I expect to get punished. Even if I think the laws are too harsh or unjust, I'm willing to accept it because I've chosen to be a U.S. citizen. And imagine back in my college days when, you know, there were guys running for to be in fraternities. And you know, I don't know if, how much you know about that, especially overseas. But, you know, they, they make these guys do ridiculous stuff for two weeks, run around the quad naked and steal goats and spray paint the facade of the president's house and what have you. Uh, and it all those things just even sit- at Christian colleges. <laughs> so, just, just so <laughs> but I mean, think, think about how ridiculous it is to ask people to do things like that just to join the club. And I would personally not do that because I'm not willing to do those things. Right. But these guys want to join the fraternity. They're opting in. So therefore that's why they're, they're, they're subjecting themselves to this particular form of justice about what they have to do the hazing to get in to the best of my knowledge i didn't have any opportunity to opt in to this cosmic game show that god has set up that there's heaven and hell that i have a sin nature i can't help it so there are these things i have to do things i have to believe what have you in order to avoid the hell and get into the heaven i didn't choose to play this game so that that is unjust to foist that punishment on me if I lose the game when I didn't even want to play in the first place. Sarah, uh, you know, I, before you go, Sarah, uh, I just want to call out uh, Tara for uh, being very right about this particular issue. It's important to mention the times when I agree with her. Because <laughs> 99% of the time I don't. Um, but, uh, but Tara uh, has often, often says when this subject comes up nobody chooses nobody chooses hell that's that's it's not only a ridiculous idea it's an offensive uh idea it's it is uh a hateful idea and i agree with her uh 100 percent uh so sarah why why are you choosing hell (laughs) well the whole idea is either based on just how vile you are as a human or just how powerful god is and how holy he is and it's like one of the two gets played out so when when you sort of say well you know it's not something i believe in they're like you don't understand just how holy god is and just how offensive your every little misdemeanor is to to him you've really got to um, understand this holiness and if you if you could see it from his perspective uh you too would want to you know crush us all because we're disgusting and so and then the other hand you know that we are just this disgusting sinful horrible things before him whereas 
I, I, it, the power imbalance in it is just incredible. It's just off the scale, obviously. that's If you were to be uh, confronted by an all-powerful God, of course you're going to fail his tests. And um, But, you know, I, uh, they also want you to believe that he's a, ha, is a father figure and like a parent and stuff. And no parent treats their child like that at all. I mean, this is the way they do it. You mess up. You go, you know, maybe go before your mum and dad. They... Uh, they maybe uh, make you ask, ask you to think about what you've done, uh, to apologise, to make good, make restitution. They try and rehabilitate you. They just want to see a little bit of genuine remorse and you learn and grow from it and you move on. And that's how we deal with our human children. So what has this God got to do with this enormous power balance where you're just going to be crushed by the, by the difference anyway? And it just... It just doesn't seem. It just it doesn't seem right at all. It's just it, it's just toying with us. Um, it's a it's a playing with us. Well, of course, we're not going to make it uh, anywhere close to anything like that. So I know the answer is Jesus, but you know the point is you're still going to have to stand there naked, as it were, in front of this Almighty God and be terrified and horrified at your at yourself, rather than how we learn as humans, which is acknowledging and and moving on. So. I find it bizarre. So, Andrew, I know that you have some uh, things to say. You wanted to go back to Luke. Uh, Now is a good time for that because I I want to talk a little bit about why hell seems so unbelievable (laughs) to uh, to us, quite frankly. I mean, we've been talking about hell and taking the subject rather seriously, but I've got to tell you, I don't spend a single uh, second of my day worrying about hell. There, there are there's some good reasons why, um, dis, despite the fever pitch that uh, Christians can get over this, I did, it, it it's wholly unbelievable to me, even more uh, unbelievable than most of the other claims of the Bible. And so, uh, Andrew, um, uh, I'm I'm going to hand you the the mic to um, to lead that conversation. Okay, I want to start by answering why I might choose hell. I actually, if, if I actually believed there was a hell, if I thought there was a place of eternal torment uh, that, that I think Val did a great job describing, right? I actually think there's a reason to choose it. Under the traditional Christian view, now all of you are shaking your head and going, what wacky thing is this guy about to say? Well, the traditional view of hell is that most people are going to end up there. And that traditional view of hell is wrapped in the notion, uh, or, or at least in parallel with the notion, that Christians are the salt of the earth and, uh, and that by doing wrong, we hasten, we hasten the return of Jesus for the eternal judgment. Well, by hastening that judgment, we would then necessarily find fewer people in hell. The longer this world exists, if it went on for another thousand years and nine out of ten people ended up in hell, wouldn't we actually be doing a social good by fighting against a God who would send most people to hell? If we could, if we could end that thousand years in a hundred Wouldn't we be doing a social good by keeping 900 years of people out of eternal torture? 
I'd have to say we would. It'd be a big sacrifice. Yeah, I don't, but, I don't, I don't love my fellow man as much as you do. Yeah, you can make a case case that that would be morally heroic. I know I couldn't do it. (laughs) And I think there's also some other arguments that even sacrificing yourself to go to eternal torment uh, is, uh, it's hard to make a moral case for that, but I don't want to get into that any further. (laughs) Well, so I understand that that, I understand that there are, uh, other cases to be made, but the trouble is, you say I, you don't want to make these these other moral cases. But the trouble is, we're starting in a place that doesn't appear to be moral. Yeah, sending sending any single person to hell for eternity does not appear, at least among the the six of us here, you don't appear to be starting in a place of good ethics. So, um, so David, I know that you were ready for us to turn to, to Luke 16. And uh, so Luke 16, 19 to 31, for those who don't have a Bible with them and, and uh, don't happen to have, uh, you know, book, chapter, and verse memorized in the New Testament, that is the passage that, uh, that is the rich man and Lazarus. And, uh, uh, and I think there are some important parallels between the rich man and Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus, not the ascension. So to be clear, the rich man and Lazarus is a red letter passage. Uh, and in that passage, you've got a, you've got a rich man who uh, spends his entire time here on earth uh, uh, gaining his reward. Right? And Lazarus is, uh, Lazarus is, is a poor person. Uh, I, I guess somewhat under the thumb, maybe, of, of this rich man. But whatever Lazarus is, he's someone who doesn't accrue riches here on earth. And he does accrue a, a, a heavenly reward, right? Um, so, Matthew, if you'll just read uh, Luke 16, 19 to 31, we'll continue the exposition. Right. Okay, this is titled The Rich Man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to get from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So, before we all jump on this, just read verse 31 one more time. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So, apparently... Even in red letters, it reads to me as if this Jesus in the New Testament, the, uh, the light of the world, the word in John chapter 1, the person who is uh, there at the founding of, at the, founding of the world, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't seem to think too much of resurrection. And for me as a skeptic, that's a problem. Jesus, Jesus appears to be this, this character, uh, Jesus ever, there was a Jesus that ever spoke these words. Jesus doesn't appear to think much of resurrection. It's a puzzle to me if this is a, if this is a perfect being with perfect understanding, perfect knowledge, uh, the capacity to grasp how his words will be received down through the centuries. I don't understand the criticism of resurrection here. I'll leave it there for opening. So in other words, if you don't already believe, uh, then the resurrection is not convincing evidence. And even more than that, if you are a believer, the thing that should convince you is something more like Moses and the prophets. Not my fault. I didn't write this stuff. And it's a unevenly distributed evidence, <laughs> to say the least. Well, it, right? it wouldn't matter. It's, it, I mean, even if you had somehow the evidence of someone rising from the dead, uh, the story says... Yeah, they wouldn't believe anyway. Right. <laughs> it wouldn't be convincing. <laughs> so um, part of the reason why you will go to hell is that you were unconvinced in the unconvincing resurrection. <laughs> right. It may well be. It, it may well be that this is, uh, you know, it, it's just a parable. Right. But if you're a, if you're a certain kind of Bible-believing Christian, um a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? If you if you happen to be a literalist, um, every word of this story, this parable, a story within our our larger story, every one of these words is important. They all carry some sort of of heavenly context where we're supposed to 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 extract some valuable meaning. And this isn't a parable. Uh, told by anyone other than uh, than Jesus himself, if you're going to believe the story. So, what is the criticism of resurrection? Uh, as a skeptic, uh, it was it was a jarring note when I was preparing uh, when I was preparing for this show, and 
it is this kind of text, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's impossible to reconcile this. It's probably not impossible to reconcile and reconcile it as a Christian. But I think the bigger question is, this passage notwithstanding, why are we in a place where there are so many reconciliations to be done? Well, and so I, uh, I put it to the room. Um, I take it that no one, it's, it's not just a matter that you think hell is unjust, uh, but that you think that hell is not a real thing. Um, Andrew brings up some uh, textual um, challenges that would, that would make one doubt. Uh, why don't you believe in hell, Val? I mean, you're a smart guy. You, you debate with Christians. Um, you know, Teddy uh, would say, you know, you, you ought to believe in it a little bit. I mean, at least enough so that it's a possibility. I mean, it's a non-zero possibility that it could be real. Uh, so if it's a non-zero possibility that it could be real, how come you're not uh, giving uh, it a non-zero uh, percentage of your life? Same reason I'm giving it, uh, I'm not putting much credence into being eaten by tigers once I walk out my front door, since I don't live in Florida and I live in Canada, I, there's not much chance of it, whether it's non-zero or not. I'm not given any good evidence for it, so that's, that's how evidential reasoning works. they got to provide the evidence, they haven't provided good evidence, so I don't spend much time thinking about it. I spend time thinking about things that do have evidence for them. Uh, such as the evidence of people who believe these crazy things. What would so, constitute good evidence? Uh, for hell? Yeah, yeah. What, what would, for you, what would constitute good evidence? Um, wow, that, well, that's sort of a big one. It, it depends, I mean, it really depends on what all comes with that, whether it has to come with every other uh, bit of doctrine attached to it, you know what I mean? Which is uh, includes the resurrection of Christ and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I, I always just say that my filter for good evidence is generally the best uh, version of vetting evidence we have, which is essentially the scientific method. Hmm. So, you know what I mean? So Yeah, we're in the same place on that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is always my problem with hell too, right? Um, it's a place I can't go. Uh, I'm told a lot about it, but I don't have any, uh, I don't have any real familiarity with uh, being given some other kind of body that is indestructible yet never consumed, et cetera. So this sort of, this sort of eternal conscious torment version of hell. Um, and, and even if, so, so here's my problem with an eternal hell. Let's say that, that we were, uh, somehow in a, in a science fiction universe transported to hell. Well, there are properties of hell that would be really hard to assess, um, that it would last forever, that it would be the worst kind of torment uh, possible, that you deserved uh, this, this hell, 
there are all of these claims about a hell that even if it existed would be really hard to come to terms with and so i'm not even sure uh that from a you know if if, if we could buy a ticket you know we could we could go to uh, to platform nine and three quarters right and 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 uh walk through the wall and all of a sudden we're in hell i'm not sure that that would get us uh i'm not sure that that would get us to all of the claims that are made about an eternal uh, conscious torment kind of hell now maybe if it was an annihilationist hell you know we never come back through the wall right um but none of us were taught uh annihilationism so let me let me just ask a a slightly different uh question uh well it may seem tangential at the moment uh, and it may end up being uh we'll come back around to uh, the point if, if we get off track but um if if you believed that hell was a real construct uh, then I take it that everyone here would try to latch on to some version of Christianity, um, because no one no one would want to go if we actually believed it was real. But let me let me just ask the question in reverse: In the absence of believing that hell is real, is there any? Um, version of Christianity that you're remotely incentivized to sign up for. Because the, the fear of the Christian is, if you don't believe in hell, there's no, there's no incentive for anyone to become a Christian. I think they're actually right about that. Um, and I think the job of the evangelist is to convince people of the bad news, and then you can tell them the good news, because otherwise the good news is meaningless if people aren't convinced of the bad news. And so that's, that's the first thing. So seeing that you, that, that no one here believes in the bad news, is there any version of the good news that makes sense to you absence and apart from this doctrine of hell? No. Yeah, those is it Randall Rouser that says that everybody ends up in hell. Well, I can't remember what the, I'm mean, not in hell in heaven, that you know, everybody gets converted on death there's some form of christianity that has that and so hell might be a place but it'll be empty anyway because everyone will be in heaven i don't think that's randall's view but if it okay. is I, I may be i apologize randall for misrepresenting you that's quite fine yeah i don't i don't think he's a universalist i think he's um that was C.S. Lewis in, uh, <laughs> hell is a, a a room where we self-torture for uh you know, for whatever reason. So I, I, I think that's more of Randall. Um, I could go for that, but it wouldn't change my behavior because I know I'm going to the good place anyway. Right. So universalism is no good. Universalism is probably the worst of the worst thing for Christianity because uh, it really does incentivize people to say, "Yeah, well, it doesn't matter what I do." <laughs> Great, um, Sarah, you're practically I literally a had Christian. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, 
I literally had that conversation with somebody on the board. I was sort of saying, they literally said that to me. They said, well, if you do, you know, universalism, then there's no point in, in being a Christian. I'm like, well, yeah, that's the, that's the issue with it. But, um, but much is made on the Christian side of, you know, how much God is drawing you to him and how good he is and all those sort of things. And that, that should be enough and that it should be the love of God that brings you towards him and worshiping him. It's almost forget about the bad stuff. Um, it's all the good stuff that, but, you know, they're admitting if they say that there's no uh, stick anymore, that the carrot isn't quite enough, which was always what my concern was with heaven. I was always thinking it might be a little bit boring up there. So um, I'm not even sure I want to go there. Definitely don't want to go to the other place down, down the bottom, but uh, up the top as well. Not, not entirely sure. So, but I think if, if you take away the stick, that's uh, a big, a big reason not to kind of bother other than the big broad strokes of, you know, love each other and, uh, you know, seek to do good and, um, well, weirdly, maybe live as if there is a God, like what uh, Jordan Peterson says. He um, he says, you know, um, he's not really a Christian, though the Christians like to claim him at the moment, but he's not in, in any evangelical sense. But he often says, you know, I, I live as if there is a God, as in I may need to give an account to someone, to to a higher being, to even to my own self and consciousness, Um uh, and um, consciousness in the sense of uh, conscience, rather, sorry, not consciousness, uh, live by the levels that your conscience uh, sort of dictates to you. So he, he says to live in that way, which is not necessarily bad advice. Um, feeling that you may need to give some sort of account might help you focus, may help you to create meaning, may help you to be um, thoughtful in the way you live. Um, so weirdly enough I'm, i might say kind of something in the middle is between uh where you know maybe there's still some good that you can come out of it even if you take the uh the stick away so i'm being I, a little bit vague I, I, we, we, we might we might wrestle a little bit later sarah uh because i actually think that there is harm in living as if you have to give an account i i think that i think that threat of having to give an account uh, is a net harm rather than a net gain. But uh, yeah, uh, Val. Oh yeah, no. I, I was just going to add that I can see uh, I can see somebody else finding something to follow in uh, the Christian religion if they do enough cherry picking and reduce it enough and take it all the bad aspects, which essentially is what my mother does. And uh, so I, I I can I can see that. It's just in myself, I can't force myself to do that, or nor do I want to, just because I would be too conscious of the cherry picking, even taking just Jesus himself, uh, that I'd have to do to get to somebody who I think is, you know, good. Uh, I don't find the Christian value theory holds up very well, um, and I just don't feel that I have to follow somebody to uh, to be a good person. So I can see how other people can be inspired. I just couldn't do it myself. Brian, you know? is there some form of religion, some form of Christianity that you would buy into without the threat of hell? Um, pro probably not any of the current existing sects of religion because they all suffer from the issues that we've been talking about for these few hours. But I, I could get on board if if the deity would show up. I mean, if he would actually show up and want to have a relationship with me and treat me with respect 
and answer my questions and have a back and forth, I could get behind lining up with the deity if he was actually going to be there to to uh, to talk to me and to convince me and to give me evidence and to you know actually you know treat me at least as well as the the most um, you know the the best partners in 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 real life I actually have. If he's going to be at least that, then I could I could get on board with some kind of a, a system. So Andrew. Um... I know that this is uh, unfair, um, which is why I saved it for you. Um, but you know, we've we've done a bit of preaching. I'm not going to try and answer this question myself. Uh, I'm punting it off on. Thanks, you. bud. Uh, so, if you were trying to bring someone to Jesus, um, minus the hell doctrine, so you you agreed up front. Oh no, there's no hell. What what was what would your strategy be? Would you be able to do it? What what does evangelism look like with no hell? Wow. Okay. Um. I will I will give an honest swing at that. Uh, I think the I think it runs upon the problem uh, that Brian uh, mentioned, and it's something that I've written about. Uh, quite a lot, and that is that the the claims of the New Testament, uh, turning water to wine, uh, uh, you know, healing the blind, uh, raising the dead, uh, stopping issues of blood, all of that kind of thing. Those kinds of claims don't actually get to the central claims of the Bible that that Christians want you to believe. Because the ability to to raise someone from the dead doesn't necessarily imply the ability to live forever. The ability to change water to wine doesn't necessarily imply that someone is all good or all loving, etc. So there there are lots of central claims in the Bible that that we can't get to through the story. So I think Brian put his finger right on the thing that is most important, but. If I were going to try to convert someone uh, to, you know, to Christianity without hell, I think all you have is you've got a life now where uh, I think you still have to play on fear. We've got a life right now and we're all locked down. Some of us have loved ones dying from COVID-19. Uh, others of us are out of work potentially starving, housing insecure. Sorry, I'm warming to the idea now. Uh, and, And so let me just tell you that there is a place. There is a thing you can do. There's a being on whom you can depend, a creator that loves you so deeply that if you only follow him, never again will you be faced with a global pandemic or housing insecurity or a loss of a loved one. Just believe, and you've got this this beautiful eternity. Now, the trouble is, the story's got to have another side. And I really believe that that is where eternal, uh, uh, where annihilationism came into this picture. I think eternal conscious torment is the is the historical view, and annihilationism is just a way not to have to tell another side of the story. It is to get rid of the warts and boils 
of Christianity. But what is Christianity without the other side of the story? I don't know how you sell the carrot without the stick. What I gave you was the very best I could do, which was if you don't believe, you just poof, you go away. And there's not even any torment, right? There's there's no there's no moment of, of pain. There's there's no acknowledgement. Just when you die, you're 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 gone. And that's the only other kind of Christian story that I think you could tell and try to get people on board. And I really think that's what the annihilationists are trying to do. Yeah, so the carrot ain't good enough. The stick ain't believable enough. And uh, the whole thing becomes insulting when someone tries to sell it. Uh, yeah. So, By the way, I think I failed your challenge. <laughs> well, <laughs> I it, tried. like I said, it was unfair, which is why I, I didn't do it. Um, so, even it, go ahead, uh, Oh, sorry. I said even annihilationism really is akin to killing somebody for not being a Christian. <laughs> I mean, like, basically, if if all of us yeah. are eternal beings uh, and we get our eternal life taken away from us by annihilation, that's still saying, that's still holding a gun to our head, uh, saying you die if uh, you don't uh, right. you know, fall in with this. I, I don't see how it solves the. The problem. <laughs> so that's that's mm-hmm. actually yeah, where I, I want to go into. Um, that's where I want to go into our, our last issue, um, which is which is the idea of love and hell. Uh, I believe that these are mutually uh, exclusive, but I, more than that, I think that they are opposites and contradictory, and I don't think that you can ever have them meet in any sensible way. Uh, I agree. So if you if you imagine, um, uh, I've I've used this uh, example in in writing. If you if you imagine uh, your daughter uh, comes to you and uh, she tells you that uh, she is uh, she's going to marry this uh, this this person that you know you you have not met this person. Uh, it, it, this seems like a flight of fancy. You are concerned about her, uh, and uh, you see that she is going to do what she is going to do. And so, resigned, you ask her, "Just tell me one thing: Do you love him?" And she says, "Of course, silly." He said that if I didn't love him, he would kill me. You see, that's not a. <laughs> That's not a happy story. <laughs> that's no. not that's not reassuring at all. And this is where the Christian is uh, with with their love story. Uh, of of course, I love Jesus because on the other side of it, if I didn't, I would go to hell, some version of hell. Either I would uh, live in in some locked room from the inside i would be self tormented i would be uh, uh tormented for a few hours and killed i would something really bad would happen to me if i didn't love him of course i love him and under those circumstances which of us could not convince ourselves that we were in love with someone <laughs> the alternative is oh yeah you're going to get messed up uh if you don't it's you see, even, and I, I, I say this carefully, even if you did love this person, it would, it would be nullified by the threat. 
there's there's simply no way to prove or or justify such a love once you are under threat. And so my um, my conundrum here is that uh, we must love God and fear hell. And I don't think that can be done. Uh, I open the floor. You um, talking about that reminded me of a time when I was uh, doing youth work and there was a particular family in the church. I won't identify anybody, obviously. But there was um, one particular girl. I had, she was a little bit of a rebel. You know, she liked to go out off and um, do things that people disapproved of and she would... Um, but anyway, that's not really the point. I, I found this out later that she had a bit of a fractious relationship with her parents, which included one of her parents, I believe it was her mother, but which one it was is, is not relevant. She was told and threatened on multiple occasions that if she ever dared to come home pregnant, that she would be thrown out of the house. And so how did this girl uh, respond to that? Did she become the uh, perfect and pure child that her parents wanted to be? <laughs> no. She started not telling her parents what she was up to. She bought a mobile phone and kept it secret so that she could communicate with people outside of her parents' knowledge. Yeah, and if she was out with uh, boys or whatever, she kept it secret from her parents where she was going, what she was up to. That is what this kind of moratorium on behavior, that's the effect that it has. Now, that is something I will never tell my daughter, and I've, she's not old enough for that kind of thing anyway, not yet anyway. Um, I'm not saying I want to know the ins and outs and the details of my daughter's sex life when it, it starts happening, but at the same time, I want her to know that I'm never going to kick her out of home if she comes home and tells me that that's happened to her. You know, I want her to know that she'll always be loved, always be my daughter, and we will work together to ever. She'll n never be disowned for that kind of behavior. Yet this teenage girl that I was res partly responsible for when I was in youth work, she lived in fear from her parents, fear of the retribution that she would be met with if she didn't behave as they wanted. And the result was she hid her behavior from her parents. It didn't turn her into the perfect child that she wanted. It's earlier today, um, I was playing downstairs with, uh, uh, with my daughter. And I think each of you uh, saw her, uh, you know, last Sunday we were on that call together. And uh, so she's a, she's, a little, she's a little child right now, uh, nine months old. And she did something that, uh, that, you know, just practically brings a parent to tears. Uh, I was actually preparing for this show and I was sitting on the couch and uh and because she's a little precocious uh she walks and and runs and climbs already she walked over and took my phone out of my hands which she does pretty regularly uh because she likes you know she likes whatever we're doing but she put the phone down and grabbed my hand and tried to pull me off the couch to come and play with her in the floor. And, and so this is, this is an awfully emotional argument. But 
I, I cannot imagine being the person who would, um, who would willingly say to a, a child, um, yes, I, I'm the person that you want to play in the floor with. And I'm also the one who will torture you forever. Full stop. Hell and love are not compatible. It's really that simple. Val, uh, check check our logic. Can can you can you have them both? Can the can the Christian uh, have it all? <laughs> it doesn't seem so to me, anyway. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just it seems that Christian logic always does a strange U-turn at the end. So that, I mean, just the way you described it, love, I mean, love, uh, part of what we usually mean by love that comes along with that is a concern for the well-being of the person we love. And so the idea of a threat uh, of, you know, as of the type that hell is, being part of that love doesn't make sense at all. Um, but if you, in Christian thought, if you follow it further out to what they would hold as the greatest type of love, like agape love, you know, the love of God for man and of man for God, well, suddenly a U-turn happens, and then uh, to express that love would necessarily entail uh, the doctrine of hell and and uh, and 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 uh, punishing somebody eternally who doesn't or can't love you. Um, it's the same thing as like how it just, it would be, nobody would call a person good who set up, who basically, who, who said like, if you're not, <clears throat> if you're not part of my religion, uh, we're gonna torture you or kill you. Um, but if you follow the Christian logic all the way to the end, it does that U-turn and, and turns around, goes the other way and says, but if you follow it to the end, the ultimate expression of goodness would do that to you with hell. So, I mean, there's always this, like, this bizarre flipping of normal sentiments on its head where you just, at least if you're non-Christian, you, you don't recognize what they're talking about anymore. So, uh, before we go to closing uh, comments, I know that there are lots of things in uh, the uh blog uh, post that we didn't talk about and you probably have a half page of notes uh, that we didn't uh, talk about and if there are a lot of things that uh, get left on the cutting room floor uh, I will be happy to do an after show <laughs> with uh, someone who feels aggrieved uh, and uh, did not get a chance to uh, say everything they needed to say but I wanted to give everyone uh, a chance to um, if there was if there was something else in what we have already talked about or a burning um, aspect of it that we haven't talked a burning aspect uh, that we haven't talked about um, that's uh, on your mind uh, now's the time to bring it up and if there are no such comments uh, Andrew will kick us off with uh, closing comments um, I've got to kick us off because I've got to go um, I am I am on child watch duty uh, like 15 minutes ago. Um, so I will only say this. I appreciated the opportunity to participate. Uh, thank you to each and every one of you. 
uh, it's been a privilege to share a podcast with you. And David, thank you for putting it together. Matthew. I've got nothing to add to what I said, what, five minutes ago. Helen Love aren't compatible. I, I just can't summarize it any better than that, frankly. Brian. So thanks for having me on. It's always great to, uh, to kick these ideas around uh, with such an esteemed panel. And um, I'm glad to have had the opportunity. The one thing that we didn't get to um, that I think is important, and I want to make sure we leave with this, is this idea that because we're skeptics, because we're atheists, we're not qualified to judge God and assess hell. I, I just want to make sure that for those that are out there questioning or doubting and, and want to get into these topics, that that, that notion is just so wrong. It's just, it, it's flatly wrong. And it also shows that you're trying to hide God behind a, behind a curtain and you don't want to put him up for evaluation. Uh, there's nothing that I understand, believe, want, fear that I haven't first dug into and tried to understand and ask questions about and tried to learn about. Uh, so if, if we're supposed to understand this God and understand hell and, and why we go there, we absolutely need to be able to come to the table and ask questions and to poke and prod and look under the hood. And I think the real, the real concrete barrier we run into is these Christians, they don't assess God's character. They come to the conversation a priori that God is all loving, that God is all just, that God is all merciful, that he's all powerful, etc. And therefore, we can't question hell along those dimensions because they've already decided he has those attributes. And I would just flip that completely around. And if you want me to judge God on those dimensions, then I need to see what he's doing, what he's thinking, what he's putting in front of us. I would never call God just without being shown some evidence of the things he's doing, the systems he's set up, the decisions he's making. So I think it is absolutely, it is, it is our duty to question these things in this way, if we're ever of deciding on whether this God is worthy of worship, whether the tasks laid out in front of us are worthy of doing in order to avoid hell. And, and I just refuse to be put in a box that I'm not qualified or allowed to be in that conversation uh, because it's, it's not true. Sarah? So I'd say that um, in a way, even having a conversation about this is giving it more kudos than it should have. I mean, the hell, the hell doctrine is a fairy tale straight from the horror section. We shouldn't be giving it any credence, really. We should be just ridiculing it and mocking it. It's time to put away these cray cray ideas and to stop and stop indulging people who believe in it. And and uh, the last podcast, though technically, yes. It was lots of history and things like that, which were maybe interesting to see how hell developed. But these ideas are completely batshit crazy, and we need to stop <laughs> indulging them. It, it's 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 idiotic. A god who wants to tell us the most important thing to humankind, and it, which is avoiding hell, should communicate clearly, not leave contradictory advice that's untestable behind, um, so that people can make informed consent. Um, and don't make it sound crazy so that people, you know, just genuinely looking at it from the outside would think that 
you rambling on about uh, revelation, apocalyptic stuff written 2,000 years ago is good evidence. You know, just make it sound really believable and give us some concrete things by which to uh, evaluate it for. Um, so, and nobody operates this way in life. We treat our kids, our human kids, much better than this. Um, I can understand the idea that some sort of justice is is something nice to hold on to in terms of restorative justice for those who have been wronged in life. Uh, and if that's what um, some sort, of, if that's what people mean by God's justice, I can understand that that's quite a, a good notion. But the idea of punishment and things just is is so wrong. And there's no truly truly wicked people there are just damaged people uh there are people who have had bad role modeling and who um haven't been shown love or who've been abused themselves and therefore go on to abuse or um there's usually lots of reasons that education and rehabilitation with enough time would get these people out of this situation so there should always be room for a u-turn or a change in direction um and the idea of anything that cuts you off once and for all is just abhorrent and it needs to it just needs to go from our vocabulary people have lived for centuries over with this notion that um has kept them up at night uh, has terrified small children i've i've even as a Christian, I was comforting a child that was 10 or something that was absolutely traumatized by the idea of hell. And it just, this sort of thing should not be taught to to people without the ability to evaluate it. Um, it's just egregious. It is child abuse, as Dawkins puts it. Um, and uh, the Christian view is so much about shame and toxic guilt um, to try and manipulate you into, into believing this. Um, and nobody should be un irredeemable in some way f if there was a god uh if 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 they are if there's if even there's no hope for hitler then there is a design flaw from the beginning and the only person to point the finger at with that is god um there should be a mechanism somehow for everyone to to be uh saved as it were if that's if that is the story and i don't know i don't know if there's anything more after life who knows no one's come back really to tell us um, Jesus biffed his communication to us. He had the perfect opportunity to tell us how it was, and he didn't do that. Um, so for, it's for that reason that I've had to put down the whole story because none of it makes any more sense. Val? Uh, yeah, actually, what, what Sarah was just uh, mentioning about... Uh, kids suffering from the idea of hell for adults. Uh, it just remind me that um, I didn't grow up uh, religious like uh, the rest of the people on this uh, uh, podcast at the moment, but I did actually have some contact. My mom, as I said, who was a Christian light, uh, felt that uh, her boys should know something about Christianity, and we had a church <clears throat> in our neighborhood, uh, literally in the middle of our street. We were on a crescent, and she just knew that it was a Christian church, so she sent us to Sunday school there for a while. Uh, but she really didn't know a lot about uh, different Christian denominations, and she had no idea that she had sent us to a, a hellfire preaching, end times are coming any moment type church. Um, and uh, so we got I got my dose of uh, hell preaching there. And um, uh, it, it, it never... It never took the whole Christian thing. Uh, I can uh, reason another time why I should have asked my mom to take me out of it. But it did leave me scared of hell for a while, to the point, uh, for quite a while, uh, to the point where even though I w 
wasn't sure any of it was true. I just knew I didn't want to end up in hell. I would go to uh, bed sometimes praying, please, God, don't send me to hell, please, in case you're there, kind of stuff. So it did, it, it was very pernicious. But so as far as the, the last word on the podcast, um, I think we've essentially spent most of the time uh, sort of discussing the character of hell, uh, you know, mostly the eternal conscious torment version with some sort of waving towards annihilationism and others. Um, but I, I think that's a, a good subject for a podcast. I think there'll be Christians listening saying, but you haven't discussed the other part of the equation. So, uh, you know, William Lane Craig would tell us that, you know, hell, the nature of hell has to do with God's uh, perfectly just nature. So that's why that's set up. But Jesus' sacrifice is the other part of the equation. That's uh, the expression of God's love and mercy. Put them two together and they balance each, each other out and make sense of one another. Um, so we didn't really get into that. And uh, I'm not going to go into that because there's obviously arguments against it. So all I'm going to do is just say another thing we didn't really get to uh, much is uh, like the quarantine version of hell, uh, as for instance expressed by Dale on the previous podcast. And um, just to sort of nod towards that for a moment, um, I guess it, it, I could just say that uh, it's expressed somewhat in a post that Dale had made uh, afterwards. Uh, pointing out that uh, sinners are um, sinners are quarantined by God in hell, and we don't object to governments quarantining people in this pandemic. So why object to God quarantining sinners in hell? So this was from the message boards to from the last show, and so I just would repeat. Uh, Darren on the message boards uh, made some excellent points, and then I'll just sort of repeat what I replied, which is just that. Uh, my answer is that God's responsible for, it's totally different, is that God's responsible for creating the disease. Um, essentially, he, he set up the disease, and in the Garden of Eden story, he essentially planted a disease bomb in the middle of the garden, it's like a biological terrorist, as it were, that was designed such that if somebody ate from it, uh, this disease would not only spread among the community, it would spread down the bloodline, infecting humans for the rest of humanity. Um, and then he would know that this would result just in untold levels of misery. Uh, and it, it would also create conditions where the access to the cure will be unevenly distributed. So a boy growing up in the Hindu slum is hardly as likely to end up embracing Jesus as a savior uh, than a boy growing up in the Christian USA South. And, uh, and, and he'd also be responsible for ensuring that the inevitable isolation of those with the disease will suffer torment. So, I mean, it's just like, it goes back, everything keeps pointing back to God, even if you try and throw in free will in there. Um, uh, and so the whole uh, quarantine thing doesn't work, and it certainly isn't analogous to um, humans trying to grapple with a disease that, uh, you know, we didn't create. Okay, thank you. And... Um... Thank you all. I um, I'll be I'll be brief in my closing, um, and I and I want to speak directly to the Christian, um, if if there are any still listening, and and I thank you for those who do listen to these. I know it's hard to hear. Uh, I love you to the extent that I understand what love is. I I do love you. My heart. Uh, bursts for you um, 
I don't believe in your heaven. Uh, there's, there's nothing that, that I know of that you can say to me that would make me believe in your heaven. Um, those uh, who are evidentialists focused on the resurrection of Jesus. Even if you could convince me that a man was resuscitated from what really seemed like death 2,000 years ago, that does not even begin to lead me toward believing in your heaven. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a completely different uh, idea. Uh, if, if I could believe in the resurrection, I still don't believe in the Christian version of heaven. Um, and we are, we are so far away from convincing me of that. I, I just cannot imagine what you could say. And why am I talking about heaven? Because that's the good news. That's the best news you've got <laughs> right there. That's your best shot. And, and you're not even close. Um, I don't believe in your hell even more than I don't believe in your heaven. So to, to say this uh, differently, I come closer to believing in your heaven, and we're not even close, than I do of believing in your hell. Uh, and in fact, the very notion of your hell makes me certain of the falsity of your heaven. When you talk about hell, you are not bringing me closer to conversion. You are pushing me further away. I believe I am not alone in this. So I'm just going to take a moment to uh, tell you about the project that I've been working on. I've mentioned this on a podcast once before. Um, I have uh, been spearheading a uh, book effort um, to uh, raise uh, funds uh, via the International Red Cross for relief efforts of uh, the coronavirus. And uh, that book is almost finished. Contributors include uh, Randall Rouser, um, David Russell, uh, Thomas Ord, Natalie Collins, uh, Matthew uh, Taylor, Sarah, uh, Andrew, myself. Uh, and I would be really embarrassed if I... Uh, forgot someone <laughs> in that list. Uh, it has been a labor of love. Some of the contributions um, are uh, will show up on other places like blogs because by the time I got to them to ask, they were in the process of writing or had already just freshly written something on the subject, and so they agreed to allow uh, me to use that as a part of the book. Most people wrote um, fresh things. It's about yeah, it's approaching 30,000 words. Uh, it's uh, well into the editing phase, the comment phase, we've got just a few bits and bobs to go. Uh, that will go on sale uh, very soon. Start saving your money. It will be $2.99. Buy many copies. Uh, you'll get one digital copy. It'll be on sale uh, from Amazon. But the funds will be donated uh, to the International Red Cross. COVID-19. COVID-19, uh, if I uh, recall correctly, this is an acronym. It stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019. It's not very creative. It's actually a fairly ugly uh, name and an ugly acronym. Uh, and it's 
appropriate, I suppose, because it's a very ugly uh, disease. And um, pray that you never uh, get it or that you never know anyone who gets it or who has to be with them in their final moments. Um, I've heard descriptions of this disease. Uh, that's all the hell we need. Honestly. I, I can't imagine someone so wicked, so hateful, so hateable, that after dying from the coronavirus, I would think to myself, ah, but they still haven't received justice. God's justice. He needs to dig him up and kill him again. I can't formulate that thought in my mind. And if this nightmare that we're living through right now isn't hell enough for you, you are a monster. What the fuck is wrong with you? I can't imagine that you preach this thinking that you are pulling the heartstrings of love. This is not love. Look around you. This is all the hell we will ever need. And the good news, if you want to hear some good news, is that we can, if we work together, doing the right things, can dig ourselves out of this hell and build something much more like a heaven that we all can believe in. And I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, everyone, for your time. Thank you, uh, panel. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.